Spirit, now would you speak deeply to each one of your children gathered here in your presence today? Would you open our eyes? Would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds, even our bodies, to what you want to do? Give us your hope. Give us what only you can give us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. God bless you. Be seated. And I need to set a little bit of historical table here. Elisha ministered in what were known as the northern tribes of Israel. You, you remember after Solomon, King Solomon, because of, in part because of the degradation of his later years, his sons, it was not a united kingdom after, after Solomon. It became a very divided kingdom. And a kingdom that was desperately divided and separated from their God, Yahweh. The northern tribes especially had drifted and drifted and drifted to the point where they were barely recognizable as Israelites, as followers of Yahweh. Beginning with Samuel, and then Elijah, and now Elisha, what was called a school of prophets was formed. Similar to what Jesus did when he gathered his 12 disciples, but as far as we can tell, this, this school of prophets Prophets was much larger than that, and it covered three different prophets, if you will. Uh, it, it was a significant way of God trying to bring a level of, of true God worship, Yahweh worship, back into his people. But at this time, the northern tribes were grossly disobedient. One of those students, the, the, the student prophets, died, according to this story, leaving a widow and two sons. Now God had commanded Israel right from the very beginning, when he gave the law all the way back as the children of Israel were leaving uh, Egypt. You'll recall the giving of the law. One of the elements of that law that God gave to his people was You've got to take care of your widows. They are your responsibility as a community. Well, they had wandered so far from any kind of relationship with God that the widows obviously were falling through the cracks. And here she was in desperate trouble. Uh, God had also provided a, a system of when his children got into financial difficulty, they could borrow from other uh, Jews, fellow brothers and sisters of Israel, and, uh, and then they would work it off. And uh, every, every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, uh, that debt would be forgiven. But there was a way that God had provided for financial crises, just like this widow was, was experiencing. But 
the people were so far from a relationship with God, she was about to die. She said that her boys were just about to have to be sold into slavery. Okay, so now we pick up the story. Let, let, let's step one verse at a time through it. One day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha. Her husband and she, apparently, were very strong believers in Yahweh God. And when this widow came to Elisha, she was, in effect, coming to God. She, she wasn't worshiping Elisha, but Elisha was God's anointed one there, and so she came to him in her time of extremity. There, there are a couple of, there are three different things that we need to pay special attention to in recognizing the plight of this woman. Number one, we're not given her name even. All we know is she's, she's a widow. But uh, God knew her name. God does not play favors. It was not because she was some special person that God gave her the attention that he did in the verses that we've just read. She was simply a woman whose husband had died untimely. And she and her sons were in need. But we're not even given her name. God knew what she needed before she asked. It's interesting, Elisha asked her what she wanted, uh, uh, but did not wait for an answer. Maybe her situation was, was clear by her clothing, by the way she was dressed. We, we don't know the extremity of their need, but for sure God knew, and he was working through Elisha. The third thing we need to, to see is this. She chose to ask. Arlene, thank you for sharing this morning. You have not because you ask not. But why is asking so important? Why was it so important for this woman to come to Elisha and lay out her need verbally to him as God's representative? First of all, you know, John. The Apostle John, in his first letter, verse that probably most of us have memorized, 1 John 1, 9. If, begins with a condition, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we admit it. You see, what was going on here and why it was so essential for this widow to come and, and ask. She was admitting her need. First of all, she had to be honest with herself. I'm at the end of my resources. I can't provide for my sons anymore or for myself. I, I've, I've got something that's got to change here. That requires a level of humility. Humility is rarely comfortable for us. Is it? We are basically, because of the broken condition into which we are born, we are self-consumed, we are self-centered. Everything is about me and about my survival. <coughs> she had to humble herself. She could no longer provide. 
When we do that kind of thing, God, hmm, we kind of give God permission to use others to meet our need. And we see how that happened here to a, to a small extent. But that's another thing. We don't usually, it's okay to just go between me and God, but to admit that I have need to others around me, that's a whole new step. Remember I mentioned Mr. Rogers' movie? How many of you have seen it? Shame on, the, on you, those of you who have not. You need to see it. One of the statements you'll recall was, and it fits so well here, if you can mention it, you can manage it. See, one of the issues that we have trouble with, I ain't saying nothing. I mean, I know where I am. I know how desperately I hurt. I know how in bad a need I am. But nobody else does. When you're in a situation where you are eaten up by anger at God or at anybody else, the very last thing that our broken nature wants to do is to say it. Not going there, don't want to talk about it, leave me alone. If you can mention, if, if we confess, it's the very first step and it's essential. And that's what this widow did. Let's go on to the first part of, of verse 2. Tell me, Elisha said, what do you have in your house? When God asks us, what we have, it's not because he doesn't know. It's because he sees things we might not see. Let me say that again. When God asks you what's in your house, when he asked the widow, what do you have? It wasn't because he didn't know she had a flask of oil. It's because he realized she did not see that flask of oil and its potential. She didn't see it the way he saw it. When we're desperate, we often feel like we have run out of options. We've run out of hope, and that's where this widow was. Now, I've only lived, uh, how old am I? Seriously, seriously, how old am I? I'm 69. I can never remember. I'm either 69 or 70. You're so nice, thank you. But, but one of the things I have learned personally and through observation, with God, there are always options. One of the things that the enemy of our soul wants to convince us of, one of, the, one of the most profound and effective weapons that he has to use against us is when we get into trouble, when we get into extremity, he, he tempts us to think, there ain't nothing you can do. You may as well quit. 
You run out of options. There is no hope. Just give up. With God, there are always options. He had options for this widow she had not even dreamed of. When I finally ask, when I finally ask for God to step in, God begins opening new vistas of opportunity for me. Do you remember the, the account? It's recorded in Mark, but I believe three of the four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000, you remember that? And uh, it was late in the afternoon. There were probably, according to Scripture, there were 5,000, but Scripture only records uh, the, the males present, the adult males. And so there were probably between 12 and 15,000 people there. If you've been there, it's a beautiful setting. It's kind of a natural amphitheater on the side of a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Jesus realizes that uh, people can't get back to get food and they probably didn't bring it with them. And uh, his disciples come to that realization, Jesus, we, we've got to do something, we've got to feed these people. And you remember Jesus' question? What did he say? What do you have? Who was the one who responded, do you remember? Which of, the, which of the disciples responded to Jesus? It was Andrew. You remember this because Andrew is always the one who's bringing people to Jesus. Everywhere Andrew is mentioned in the New Testament, he is bringing someone to Jesus. The first one he brought to Jesus was his brother. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Uh, Andrew says, well, Jesus, we really don't have anything. All we have, I, I met a kid over here with, with five loaves and two fish. But what's that for 15,000 people? We're out of options, Jesus. No, we're not. <laughs> Jesus stepped in and uh, he enabled the disciples to see the potential of what God can do when we ask, when we admit our need. Second part of verse 2. After Elisha said, tell me what you have in your house, she said, nothing at all except a flask of oil. Now what we need to understand today, uh, she wasn't just talking about a beautiful flask of oil that sits beside the stove for cooking or for whatever. Olive oil was one of the most valuable commodities in that whole culture. It did so many things. First of all, to the Jew, olive oil was the symbol of God's presence. Olive oil was what was poured over the head of prophets and kings. Anybody that God wanted to use uh, specifically for a specific task, he would have someone pour olive oil representing the Holy Spirit himself. So, 
she had in her home what represented the very presence of God himself. Olive oil, of course, was used for food prep and cooking. It was used for cosmetics. It was used for medicine. It was used for lighting lamps. It's very possible that this widow was so far down, she may have been saving that last bit of oil for her own burial. Because when someone died, their body was anointed with oil. And so she may have been saving that for her own death. Verse 3. Elisha says, go and borrow as many empty jars as you can from your neighbors, from your friends and neighbors. Why would God get her neighbors involved? Well, I'm sure there are several things come to my mind. First of all, he may have been trying to wake them up to their responsibility. Oh, gee. I've been watching. And there was this societal memory. We are supposed to take care of our widows that had drifted off into Never Never Land. And, and all of a sudden, when she came, and the boys came and asked for jars. Why? Oh, I had no idea. So it's like God awakening them to their responsibility. Now, now hear this. This is another thing that comes to my mind for this question. Why would God want her to get her neighbors involved? Sometimes it's easier for us to accept help from God than it is from a person. Very spiritual to accept help from God, isn't it? And very secret, very private. Nobody knows but me and God. And Elisha says, guess what, my dear? We're going public. <laughs> Whoa. It requires humility, of course. And it required from her a not so comfortable obedience. Always amazes me whenever we're in extremity. God has allowed, perhaps even caused, that extremity. For reasons which we may never know, but there is always one reason that can be known for sure. He allows us to get into that extremity so that we can learn how to obey Him more completely, to trust Him more completely. You can always be sure that that's one of the main reasons God allows the pain into your life whatever its source or cause. Another question comes to my mind. Why was she required to get as many jars as she could? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. First of all, it's a test of faith. How many jars do you think I can fill? Of course, she didn't even know that he was going to fill the jars at that point. But I think there's something else working here. 
going and getting as many jars as she could got her boys involved in God's miracle. It wasn't just for her. It wasn't just about her. God wanted her boys to see him work and to provide. Mom and Dad, when we try and protect our kids from all of the crowd of life, we're not doing them a favor. Oh, I could really get off on a tangent there and stop. But I think the biggest thing is in this particular situation, the reason that she was required to get as many jars as she could is because God always desires to bless us super abundantly. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, probably another verse that you have that you have memorized. God desires to provide super abundantly beyond. This is the only time this particular language construction is used in older New Testaments. It's a triple imperative. Super abundantly beyond. That's how God wants to provide. Verse 4. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Why? Why just mom and the boys in the house alone with the empty jars? I think Elisha wanted the widow and her sons to have no doubt that God had met their need. So she begins to pour, and it keeps pouring and pouring and pouring and fills up every jar that they've got to to the brim. And then she asks, I need another, need another jar. And the boys say, sorry, Mom, it's all we could get. It's all they had. And the oil stopped flowing. Verse 6. Now please hear this. Apparently, you and I can limit what God wants to do in our lives. You see, the level of our obedience reveals the level of our trust. We're either limiting God or we are releasing Him to bless us. This is a kind of sitting on the edge of your seat relationship with God. It's a level of obedience that says, I'm all in, God. I'm not holding anything back. I'm all in. You know that Connie and I spent 30 years pastoring in Tucson. Tucson uh, has a, a NASCAR race party called TRP, Tucson Raceway Plan. They would go through several different advertising campaigns throughout the racing year. One of them I'll never forget. It said this, if when you are at TRP, 
and you're not sitting on the edge of your seat, you're taking up too much space. Mm -hmm. God wants us in our relationship with him and our trust of him and our obedience. He wants us to be all in, anticipating what he has for us. I don't want to miss anything. Verse 7. Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. God did not simply give her a bunch of money, He gave her a new responsibility and an oil business. Did you get that? You live on what's left over? Did you get that? He, he enabled this widow to provide for her family by effectively managing the oil that was left over after she paid her debts. God cared, apparently, as much about paying her debts as he did feeding her and her sons. Oh my. All right, so what? So what, farmer? Big deal. Nice story. Thank you. Goodbye. I'm out of here. Happy New Year. Let me give you some so what's, all right? No matter what your current extremity, and I don't know what it is. You may not even know what it is. You just feel like you're hurting. Maybe there is a lack of contentment or peace. I don't know. But no matter what your current extremity, God knows what it is better than you do. And He cares. He's not just watching and saying, isn't it fun to watch her hurt? He cares. Another observation. God rarely acts extraordinarily unless we ask Him to. What do you need to ask him for today? Now, I know, I, I have to, whenever I preach this particular message, I, I have to kind of build a caveat in here. This is not about folks who have learned how to live on other people's generosity. It's not what this is talking about. This is talking about people who are responsible, who work hard, who do everything they can to not just survive, but be productive. But for whatever reason, they come into extremity. That's who this is for. Even if you have given up hope and you feel like you've run out of options, God always has hope to give and options to reveal. 
I have come to realize in the counseling room, whether it be with a, with a young person who is at the end of their rope and considering suicide, or a married couple that has had enough beaten heads together, whoever it might be. One of my biggest responsibilities and privileges is to help them to begin to see their options. There are always several different options. And most often, God wants to give others the blessing of helping to meet your need. Are you willing to let others beside God help you? Huge question. Here's another question for you. What olive oil do you have that God wants you to trust to Him totally? Think about it. When Elisha said, go in and just start pouring your flask out into these jars, she had no idea what was going to happen. But she had to start pouring. She had to admit before God and before Elisha, I'm all in. I'm going to obey. I'm going to trust you totally. What flask of oil do you have that God wants you to trust totally to Him. Here's another question. <laughs> Are you willing to look foolish in front of your neighbors, friends, co-workers in order to obey God? Are you that all in? We can learn a few things from this moment, can't we? Whoa. Perhaps the biggest question of all. Is your unwillingness to trust God totally limiting what He wants to do in your life? That's a question only you can answer. Is your unwillingness to go all in Is your hesitation, I don't know if I can trust you that much, God. <laughs> Is your unwillingness to, 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 unwillingness to trust God totally? Is that limiting what he wants to do in your life? One last question, and I'll stop. How consumed, concerned are you about your financial debt? God is. Let's pray. Father, this story from oh, roughly 2,800 years ago, 2,700 years ago, like it could take place right here today. 
in each one of our lives. And it might be. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, my friends gathered here in your presence today. If, if they're feeling like they've kind of run out of options, if they're beginning to lose hope that their life can ever be significant, let alone productive, different than it is today. If there's somebody here that is really, they're not on the edge of their seat following you. In fact, they're leaning back as far as they can be. And they want to stay comfortable. Don't bother me. Don't ask too much of me. Don't require too much of me. Or I'll rebel for sure. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us deep within our own spirit if there is an area in our lives that we are limiting you. Our refusal to be all in is limiting what you want to do in us and through us. Would you, Holy Spirit, kind of open our eyes not to just see the possibilities around us, but to see how we're limiting you so that we can repent of that. That means turn away from that and allow you to be God in our lives. Thank you for promising to provide for us, to protect us. Thank you, honest, authentic, obedient relationship with each one of us. Take us deeper this year as we anticipate the next year. Again, we have, we have no idea what you're going to require of us, what you're going to lead us through, what you're going to walk through with us you're going to ask us to face. But we don't walk into that unknown future with fear, no. We walk into it with confidence that there are no surprises for you. And we can trust you. We can trust your provision. We can trust your protection. We, we can trust you to make us into that which you created us to be from the beginning. Help us to sit on the edge of our seats waiting and ready for what you 